Hi, this is Kate from Durham in England. Jed Bartlett is my president, is a Chipperish media production and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To support Chipperish and gain access to exclusive content, please visit patreon.com chipperish. And welcome to Jed Bartlett is my president, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and every week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is multiple flashbacks to simpler times. This week's episode is In the Shadow of Two Gunmen, parts one and two, the first and second episodes of season two. And here to talk with me about it is my special guest, Sarah D. Bunting. Sarah D. Bunting is a co-founder of Television Without Pity, co-editor-in-chief of Previously.TV, and co-host of approximately 6,000 podcasts, including TV True Crime Pod, The Blotter Presents, and pop music rumination podcast, Mark and Sarah Talk About Songs. She lives in the Ridge of Bay, Brooklyn. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you with me. This is a big day for me. I've been such a fan of yours for such a long time. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Oh, well, it's good to have you with me. And I'm so excited to talk to you about the West Wing and everything. I do have a question for you. As someone who has their finger on the pulse of pop culture, what do you think would happen if someone tried to produce something as earnest as the West Wing now in the age of the grim, dark prestige drama? Oh, that's a tough one. The <laughs> landscape has really changed mm-hmm. a lot just watching TV-wise, not just dark prestige drama-wise, because that had really already started when The West Wing oh, was sure. on. That was like sort of um, at the same time as The Sopranos and some Deadwood of the seminal... and all that, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like there's still always that, you know, that one or two network dramas that are... Like, they are kind of earnest and, like, f- feelsy. Mm-hmm. Like, This Is Us, oh, sure. I think, is, mm-hmm. is a good example. So I don't know if you could do it. I, I don't know if you could do it. I think uh, politically, um, you know, people people do long for that escapism. But I think because The West Wing already exists to do, a uh, like, a show about the White House mm-hmm. that is this earnest and sort of um, wish board ish <laughs> wouldn't necessarily work because you have Veep and you also already have the West Wing. And mm-hmm. I know from Twitter that people are marinating in West Wing oh, reruns, yeah. just it's like a huge thing right now, <laughs> going fetal and you know soothing themselves to sleep with some with some Josh and some Leo. I totally get it. I hadn't done it since uh the new regime right but immersing myself in these two episodes again before coming on the podcast was like ah yes it's like ah, slipping into a warm bath isn't it competence <laughs> i know i know it's fiction but hello hello idealism yes oh, hello again progressive <laughs> ideals 
Yeah, it's 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 pretty nice, I got to say. And and dumping into the West Wing for, you know, this podcast has been such a like a bomb to my soul to be able to go back to all of those those times and and talk about, you know, these issues in a way that is really about the issues and it's not as much. I mean, some of it is about the the gamesmanship, you know, and the, and the political uh theater. But, you know, a lot of it is just about this earnestness and this belief that you can do a good thing and do the good thing for the right reasons. It's really nice. Have you, but have you had a um, sort of re-entry into the atmosphere problem? Because <laughs> yes. at the end of the second episode, I just like, I left, uh, I just let Netflix keep running. Mm-hmm. Netflix is like, are you sure you're still watching? I'm like, bitch, please. <laughs> and just like, was doing chores like elsewhere in the house, yeah. but like from down the hall, I could hear uh, Sam intoning about something and then right. Ainsley came and I was like, I hate this intro, but I don't care. <laughs> because the good guys win like I couldn't bear to turn it off my husband's like we got a thing we got to go to dinner I'm like can I just can we put the laptop in the with the no we have to go out there where it's all actually happening where it's all actually have you have you had that problem that you like literally can't turn it off except by falling asleep yeah basically I mean I have been running through the whole thing and then when I hit the end I just go back to the beginning and start over again Because I love that. Like, my favorite thing is when Sam says education is the silver bullet. Because honestly, I really believe that. I believe that education is the thing that will fix everything. We get good education. We get people who care about being smart and don't see it as something they should be ashamed of. Um, you know, that is the thing that I that I keep waiting for. And I'm waiting for us to bounce. You know, I'm waiting for the bounce where we, we come back from this place where we're just so angry and so divided and start working together again. Because the thing is, like, I'm completely like anybody who's ever listened to any of my podcasts knows how completely politically like liberal I am. I don't think there's anybody who's more like liberal than me, except for maybe like Bernie Sanders, you know. And uh, and I mean, like, I don't necessarily agree with the conservative viewpoint, but I love when we have conservative viewpoints represented in the West Wing that are represented from a place of idealism. You know, because I can at least respect that. And I like somebody pushing back against me from an idealist place, not from a place of this is how we win the fight. But this is what we're fighting for. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was raised by a small government, small C mm-hmm. conservative mm-hmm. Uh, who, you know, now he's an Obama voter. Yeah. Because this isn't this isn't what he signed on for when right. he first became a Republican. <laughs> but it, Seeing the sort of Vinix of the mm-hmm. world, yeah. which is, you know, my dad yeah. canceling my mom's pink go vote out for 50 <laughs> odd years of marriage. <laughs> it was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like yeah. a, a true conservative viewpoint makes some sense. But now we're off in this weird totalitarian slash neurological plaque intrusion area yeah. that I don't mm-hmm. even... I don't even know, yo. Yeah, this is this is exactly why I am pretending for one hour a week that Jed Bartlett is my president. (laughs) I I am happy to uh, pull up a chair to Uh, that table. Thanks. I'm so glad that you can join me. These episodes aired on October 4th, 2001, and both were written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Tommy Schlamme. So it almost feels like one long episode rather than two separate episodes. So I like that we can talk about them all together. Um, I regularly and shamelessly pull information from the West Wing Weekly podcast with Joshua Molina and Rishi Hirway because it's so good and interesting. And if you need to do a full West Wing rewatch, they are your guys. 
The bit of information I'm pulling this week is from their interview with Tommy Schlamy about In the Shadow of Two Gunmen, where Schlamy noted that the New Hampshire scenes were filmed actually on the Gilmore Girls lot, which is another WB produced show (laughs) to save money. And now that I think of it, I mean, Sarah, let me know if you saw this. The Manchester headquarters does really look like Luke's diner. I mean, it's majorly redressed, but the bones of the space are exactly the same. I think it's Luke's diner. I, I'm sure you're right. I was I not know. a Gilmore Girls watcher, in fact. Oh, I know. They're, yeah. They're, they're going to pull my uh, TV addict card. But I know, really. I, like, it does look... I, and I think they redressed certain Dawson's sets for various <gasps> things. So oh, sometimes yeah. you could see, like, the... Um, God, what was it called? The Ice House. Uh-huh. And you're like, that's not... That, that's not a gym. <laughs> that's not a gym where there's a dance. That's the Ice House. Yeah. <laughs> That's good trivia. And yeah, that's a great that's a great podcast. Also very soothing. Oh yeah. No, I'm gonna have to definitely I've never watched Dawson's Creek. Oh God. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing nothing. Uh, really? I don't know. I've I've heard there's uh there's good interesting stuff there and I always feel like there's this big pop culture whole because Dawson's Creek was kind of like I aged out of Dawson's Creek a little bit and so I was a little bit too old for it when it started airing um but it's one of those things that I feel like I need to kind of catch up on but if you haven't watched Gilmore Girls I have to tell you like that is my second comfort viewing after I've got the West Wing and I've got Gilmore Girls and I basically just bounce back and forth between the two of them (laughs) yeah my comfort viewing is the Sopranos the Sopranos wow I am from New Jersey. Okay. Well, no, I guess Some that's okay. Some of it is like a documentary. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, ki- I'm kind of a little bit of a dark person. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right. <laughs> that's all right. Okay. Well, let's get into the synopsis. In this episode of The West Wing, chaos ensues in the aftermath of the shooting. The president is rushed to the hospital with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Josh undergoes surgery with a gunshot wound to the chest, and the White House staff gathers in the waiting room to wait for the news. Meanwhile, we flash back to the moments when our major players joined the Bartlett campaign. All right, so this episode has these two separate timelines, the present day and then the flashback to when they all came together. Um, So I find that kind of interesting. I think I'm going to start with all the present day discussion and then we'll hop into the flashbacks because they are sort of two separate storylines going on. Um, So the backstory timeline is kind of fun. What did you think about all that flashing back? Uh, I liked it. I mean, when I rewatch these episodes, which I think are incredibly well built, Mm -hmm. um, suspenseful, uh, Agent Butterfield screaming GW blue, blue, it still even Mm -hmm. talking about it. All the little hairs just were like, hi, (laughs) it's so, even if you know it's coming and then there's that shot of the limo squealing around in a Mm U-turn, it's really fantastically done. And when I first watched The West Wing, which I did not watch uh, contemporaneously with it airing, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a period like 10 odd years ago when Bravo was airing a double shot of it every day. Mm -hmm. And that's how I came to the show. Uh, That there's an impatience that you feel because you want to stay with the present and with what's going on with Josh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here comes Donna finding out and she's like, hit with what? And you're like, oh, honey. Uh, but the flashbacks are so necessary mm-hmm. to let you breathe. Yeah. Otherwise, no, they really it's just are. too much. It's like, um, 
in our uh, episode, in our podcast, Extra Hot Great, we have a thing called the Canon where people mm-hmm. submit great um, TV episodes for consideration in the you know all time TV episode Canon. Mm-hmm. And someone once submitted the ER episode where Carter and Lucy get stabbed. Spoiler, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and that, the experience of watching that, which was like unrelenting. And then at some point, like they cut away to some other storyline and you're like, what are you doing? And then you realize that you have been coiled into this like fiddlehead fern shape for 20 (laughs) minutes and like you may have sprained part of your neck yeah so the flashbacks really work to um first of all give you a break Mm -hmm. but also you forget that I don't know I feel like we've all been living with the west wing for so long that you forget that we didn't always have this backstory Mm -hmm. and that there was even further back backstory and uh it it underlines you know my favorite characters are maybe not the traditional oh, who are your favorite, favorite characters? characters i like leo oh leo's best, great mm-hmm. i think because leo is so is so dadly mm-hmm. in that like sentimentally unsentimental way yes. <laughs> um and bartlett is right bartlett himself is right up there although his whole mm-hmm. thing about thinking baseball is boring is Lo siento. Yeah. Unforgivable. <laughs> well, yeah, I find those characters, I mean, Leo and Bartlett do have that that real kind of dad element to them, you know, and especially we see that in this episode because we kind of address this sort of father-son relationship, you know, developing between Bartlett and Josh, you know. And they're both the oh, ones God, who are shot. Absolutely. They're both the ones who are in surgery, even though the president isn't quite as injured as Josh is. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I love seeing that. The the going into the into the the backstory um, was nice. It was nice to see because it's, it's part of like we see all these people, you know, bonded together and how tight they are, and then we see how they all came together, and then of course we culminate that backstory, you know, with this this moment where they're all in the room together, you know, basically yelling at. Bar- for a bunch of different reasons, you know, and it's really fun to kind of see we, we're at this point where we've seen them together. We've only seen them bonded and to see them as they form that bond was kind of nice. I kind of enjoyed that. And you're right. It does give you that little bit of break and there's some room for comic relief and there's some room for, you know, like Toby getting drunk and all that stuff and CJ falling oh God, into the pool. So great. There's that moment, uh, you know, I have enormous respect for Bradley Whitford, who has also Mm -hmm. been in an all-time great um, tension-clenching ER episode from that show's first season Mm -hmm. called Love's Labor's Lost, which everyone who watched that show has heard of. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's extremely charming in that role. And I I think Shlami was on that show. Oh, yeah. And that may have been where he, how he hopped over to the West Wing. Don't Mm -hmm. quote me on that. Um, No, I think he did say that he was on that show. And he actually, the -the over-the-head shot that we get of Josh, and this, of course, I get from the West Wing Weekly, which everybody should listen to their episode about in The Shadow of Two Gunmen, because they talk about all this stuff, and it's very, very cool. But I think he was talking about that um, over-the-ambulance shot where Josh is being pulled out of the ambulance at the hospital, that he got Uh that from an episode of ER that he did. Right. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, the character of Josh mm-hmm. for me um, soured quickly mm-hmm. uh, when I was going through the show and I think has really not aged well because he tends to be everything uh, mansplainy or oh, sorkinsplainy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that Donna 
would sort of be this ensorcelled by him mm-hmm. once they finally get together it's kind of like no like girl <laughs> you could do better than that guy even though he's adorable and I totally would like yeah. from a bum chicka standpoint mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from a relationship standpoint Pasadena but <laughs> there are a couple of moments like there's a moment where Bartlett comes to the airport mm-hmm. and uh is talking to him about his dad because Josh is going His father Mm -hmm. has died sort of unexpectedly. And uh, there's this moment where Bartlett has just offered to go with him. Mm -hmm. And Whitford is giving this look of like, he's completely sort of at sea. Mm -hmm. He really wants a hug. And he's so grateful for that mitzvah of Bartlett Mm -hmm. offering to go with him. You want me to go with you? Go with me? Maybe you want some company on the plane. I can get a ticket and go with you. Governor, California, you have to go to the ballroom and give a victory speech in prime time and go to California. I guess you're right. You guess I'm right? Listen to me, Governor. If you don't lose this election, it isn't going to be because you didn't try hard enough. The character drove me bazoo for seasons on end. And like the backpack and the snotty attitude towards mm-hmm. CJ sometimes. It was just yeah. like, I, I can't with you. Mm-hmm. But the actor never cheated it for a minute and mm-hmm. was doing such wonderful work. And I loved that bond of the actors Oh yeah, in that mm-hmm. moment. And there are many, many moments like that where these characters can be frustrating, not necessarily because they've been written um, to be frustrating in that kind of human way that all people are, mm-hmm. but that they're kind of carrying water for whatever Sorkin-y wish fulfillment thing is happening. And Sorkin sometimes is not as elegant as he thinks he yes. <laughs> with these things, but the actors are consistently like without this cast, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to say how it's hard to say how long this would have gone on or um, whether it, whether it would have been able to exist. I mean, certainly Mm -hmm. at television without pity, when we first expanded our slate from only Dawson's Creek to a bunch of shows, Mm -hmm. we're looking at the new shows for the season and we're like a political drama starring Rob Lowe. That (laughs) shit is getting canceled in three weeks. (laughs) Tops. Dollar bets over under <laughs> three episodes, four episodes. We and we've been telling that story on ourselves for you know almost oh, two yeah. decades now because ha- I, you didn't know. I didn't know. It's hard to but, predict that kind of stuff. You think Rob Lowe because at that point, like Rob Lowe, I didn't take Rob Lowe seriously really until he showed up on Parks and Rec. Even when he was on West Wing, he showed up on Parks and Rec, and I was like, okay, I love this guy. <laughs> Well, and then he was sort of like the, he was the one who's like, well, I'm going to leave and be on the lion's den. And it's like, I don't think you are. Exactly. I don't, not so sure about that. There, David Caruso the second. Right. But uh, yeah, that was, that was a bad call on our part. But then after that moment, that mm-hmm. flashback that is also quite emotionally intense, mm-hmm. then you cut back to the present day and Bartlett stroking his hair in mm-hmm. uh, post-op. And uh, every time I'm just like, <laughs> I mean. It kills me. And then when he says, what's next? I couldn't hear you, Josh.
he said? He said, what's next? Dad's doing dad stuff. Oh, gets my me God. I know. No, it's great. And this is, I think, one of the episodes. We've had what's next as kind of this thing that Bartlett just says all the time. And then it's in this episode, in that flashback. Well, that's it, then. We've saved people the trouble of voting. What's next? Our, our point is that it's... I understood the point. We're going to South Carolina to set up Illinois. When I ask what's next, it means I'm ready to move on to other things. So... What's next? And it becomes this this linchpin in this episode. And so to go to that moment at the end with Josh, where he says, what's next? And the president is the only one who can hear him whisper that. I mean, it yeah. is it is so incredibly powerful. And that bond between them, like up until this moment in the in the show, I hadn't really seen, um, you know, Bartlett and Josh as having that that tight like father son relationship. But then we have this here at the beginning of the season. And when we move to the end of the season, you know, we have, of course, two cathedrals, which in which he says, you know, Josh is my son, you know, Um so it's it's a really interesting relationship, and I love the way that they they develop that within this episode. It's it's incredibly powerful, and you see this more going forward. I think mm-hmm. this um, duality of uh, both Bartlett personally and sort of our American conception of uh, president, mm-hmm. at least to date, yes, as both um, like thundering, angry warrior. A vengeful and also, god. Yeah, a vengeful god. <laughs> I was just going to say that. That it's like, do you want an angry vengeful god or do you want a forgiving gentle god? Mm-hmm. Forgiving gentle god. Please. Uh, that he's also America's dad. Mm-hmm. That And he does all those things that, you know, not to be sort of stuck in a 50s conceptions of dad mm-hmm. mode. And moms do this too. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, uh, reliable protection yeah. uh, as the country's parent. Mm-hmm. But then there's also like part of that is like the column of righteous fury and especially coming from an actor as um, b- brief in stature, shall we say, <laughs> as Mr. Sheen, it it can be quite, it's not an easy dime to turn on and he's mm-hmm. asked to do it frequently because yeah. he's playing the president of the United States. So sometimes he's like being goofy about like, what's one of his little pet things like softball? Oh, why does he like softball, but he doesn't like baseball? It's so weird. Like, it's the same thing. But, like, he's practicing to throw out the first pitch. I forget mm-hmm. when that scene is, but he's just oh, breaking yeah. every vase in the right, residence. Right, because he's wearing the uh, <laughs> the Kevlar vest in that episode. Oh, God, he's so, he's just, like, bitching for, like, ten minutes about yes. it. And the Secret Service is like, uh-huh. And uh, Leo's, like, dodging, or not Leo, uh, Toby is, like, dodging. Mm-hmm. Like, balls are sailing everywhere. Mm-hmm. But then he can also be like that sort of like grumpy Bartlett, but then yeah. he can be this uh, very impressive, um, like you could see the glimmer of rage sometimes that mm-hmm. he does it really well. I feel like uh, Martin Sheen didn't get quite enough credit amongst that cast, which was all very impressive. And I'm not yeah. trying to take away. Did he win any Emmys? Ever? I 
I don't know, but he definitely deserved them because that's one of the things like we have. And it's one of the things I, I really like about a lot of the characters in this show is that we have such an incredible range of complexity, you know, with all of these characters that they have a, like a prismatic element to their, um, to their character, like who they yeah, that's are. That's a great word. I'm going to steal we that from see you. That. Oh, no, absolutely. Please do. Um, I'm sure I stole <laughs> it from somebody else. Um, but they have like that where, you know, Bartlett is, you know, five or six or seven different identities, you know, he is the president. He is the vengeful God. He is the dad. You know, he's the um, the pedantic, you know, guy who will sit there and say, well, there are three words in the English language that start with DW. You know, and you got to go through and figure out which one all of them are. You know, he knows all of the national parks and all that kind of stuff. Um, but Martin Sheen, I think has this ability to deliver, you know, he has this ability to be incredibly goofy, like in the pilot episode, you know, he comes in, he has this, you know, he's, he's this goofy guy who, you know, fell in or rode his bicycle into a tree. And then he comes in at the end when we see him, he is, I am the Lord, your God. Those are his first lines as President Bartlett is, I am the Lord, your God. And he wasn't really supposed to be. No. In the show, it was that supposed much. to be he was in the background, but he was, he was gonna so be the incredibly god. good. Like exactly, sets the clock and vanishes. So, exactly, because yeah. it was supposed to be just about the the staff, you know, and the people who work around him. But because he was so incredibly good and so incredibly powerful, and when and Sorkin, you know, I have my issues with Sorkin. Anybody who's listened to this like this podcast knows that I have my my issues with Sorkin, especially with the way that he writes women. Um, But there is something in Sorkin that he has this incredible ability to write this dialogue that is, is, you know, absolutely transcendent. And when you give these actors, and I really do think you're right, like any other actor playing Josh, I would hate that character. But Bradley Whitford brings this incredible charm you know, and this warmth to this character that is essentially kind of misogynistic. Like in a lot of these episodes, when somebody is saying something bad about the women, it tends to be Josh. And it's always Josh explaining things to Donna. And Donna's like, I'm sorry, I'm a neophyte. I don't know anything, you know. And we sort of turn that around as time goes on. But it's not a great first impression, you know, for Josh. No. But these characters, I mean, Bradley Whitford has this ability. I mean, he did he did a bad guy in the X-Files. And I remember being charmed by him then when he was supposed to be the bad guy (laughs) there's something about Bradley Whitford that he can just pull that off and make it charming yeah well and he finds the um he finds the other notes yeah sometimes Mm -hmm. that that you need to that you need to have to just sort of give it some depth that you're like yeah this guy is a sexist and a mansplainer (laughs) but there's there's more to him than that Mm -hmm. and like most mansplaining it does come from a place of like but I'm really smart and I want your approval. (laughs) And, you know, this lifelong apple polisher can relate. Mm -hmm. She she might not be proud of it, but I, (laughs) I get it. So it, he does, he does have a way of making these characters very relatable and also like not um, irretrievable, Mm -hmm. I guess. But since we're on that subject of like actors, selling sometimes these things that are like on paper I wonder what it's like to just read it having never seen it before Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. wonder what that would be like and I'm thinking of the flashback to curly-haired CJ oh yeah um getting pulled out of bed and getting fired Mm -hmm. because she says what everyone would like to say 
to this jackass. Lady, your the movies were bad, Roger. All of them. Even the little kid was bad, but he's a little kid. He had a couple of scenes, big eyeglasses, little lisp. He's going to the Golden Globes. You know why the new Coke marketing campaign failed? Because nobody liked new Coke. The movies were bad. If the movies were unknown, I could help you, but they weren't. They were just bad. And uh, it's like, I feel like Sorkin had been saving that one for a oh, while. Yeah. Mm hmm. I understand. I, I get it. We all have our stalking horses and, right. you know, Hollywood has to be a very frustrating place, I'm mm -hmm. sure. But there's absolutely no way, like, even though Allison Janney is operating at the top of her powers and I love mm -hmm. that character, that is really a lot of, like, wish fulfillment. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, mm -hmm. I mean. Especially he slipped from three to nine. You know, as far yeah. as the most powerful people in Hollywood. So the very idea that she would be in a job like that. I mean, you're in public relations. You're in, you know, um, um, promotion and marketing. Like, you know not just how to market your client, but how to market yourself to your client, you know? So the idea that CJ wouldn't be savvy enough to be working this guy had gotten that. If you've gotten that job in the first place, you're savvy enough to work that guy. Exactly. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. at the same time, it's also quite um, smug mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. everyone sort of outside of our credits, casts, bubble, mm -hmm. I guess, for lack of a better term, that it's, you know, if she's this, um, if she is this withering mm -hmm. about this guy and this fed up with this guy and can be pulled out of bed in her pajamas, basically, to come and make an accounting of herself in person if she's that <laughs> low on the totem pole, but then only her firing will satisfy this guy's ego. Like, the mm -hmm. whole setup is just a setup. It's very yeah. contrived. Mm -hmm. And I agree, it's it's very problematic. Like, I forget who says to her, I think, Toby, like, you don't like this job. You don't want to be here. Like, okay, but per the universe of the show mm -hmm. she's been doing it she lives in los angeles it's not mm -hmm. a temporary situation yeah. and then why do you have to make her fall in the pool yeah it's that why is it necessary to like fall. literally cut the tallest person in the scene down right yeah, I mean, it's just it's a further humiliation. And then we've got this moment where she's like, avert your eyes, my dress is going to be clingy, you know. Um, yeah. But the thing that like, I, <laughs> I kind of miss, and I don't think we get it throughout the run of the West Wing, although I can't be entirely certain. But we get all these moments where everybody meets for the first time. But obviously, Toby and CJ have already known each other. And I don't know, like, I gotta tell you, I'm a big Toby CJ shipper. It never goes anywhere. <laughs> but they are the ones that I want together. Like when when CJ is with Danny Concanon, I'm like, oh, God, just stop. It's just terrible. Like, you know, give me some Toby and CJ because they have such a great relationship. <laughs> but we don't see how they meet. They already know each other. He shows up and he says, I'm here on instructions from Leo McGarry. McGarry wants me? Yes. Come join the campaign. And I think that this is, you know, it's nice to pull her in. I like, you know, the the moments that we have from so many of these characters when they first come to the Bartlett campaign. Like, you know, I love the moment where Josh gets pulled in and, and you know, Bartlett is having that town hall where he's like, Yeah, I screwed you on that one. I'm sorry? I screwed you. You got hosed. Sir, I... Not just you, a lot of my constituents. 
I put the hammer to farms in Concord, Salem, Laconia, Pelham, Hampton, Hudson. You guys got Roger, but good. And you can see Josh's expression where he's like, oh, this is the real thing, you know? Um, so that's really cool. We get all this stuff that's really cool. But CJ's introduction is like, it's it's goofy and sitcom-y. And I think like beneath CJ, which happens with a lot, unfortunately, a lot of CJ's material is beneath the character. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I would like to think that I think CJ was pretty much like uniformly beloved. It mm-hmm. wasn't like Josh where like you rewatch and you're like, oof. Yeah. Um, but so I don't remember sort of at the time people feeling like, well, let me back up. I mm-hmm. would like to think that this was Sorkin's attempt to make her not too perfect. Right. But I don't, I don't think it was that. Mm-hmm. I think it was like, consistently like someone had to be um well someone had to be like um pedaconferenced with and allow Mm -hmm. exposition to be given about political process which Mm -hmm. while I enjoy the processy explanations I don't think it always has to be delivered to Donna or Margaret or Mm -hmm. CJ exactly okay like I was gonna say she's a press secretary she'd know things uh <laughs> apparently that's not a requirement well okay Kath. yeah but reality is is not where we are right now <laughs> but, right I mean, exactly CJ... so like in in the world we all used to live in yeah we yeah. get her a lot of stuff where she obviously knows what she's talking about i mean she's on top of her game yeah and seems like generally speaking and also this is like a you know formidably tall mm-hmm. woman and you wonder if there wasn't but then it's not the same for Donna, who, when mm-hmm. she's introduced, is like, she has little banana clips in her hair. Mm-hmm. She hasn't finished college. She's kind of a little bit stocky about getting <laughs> herself a job, mm-hmm. which I think is like, well, that's ambitious and yeah. go gettery and it does work. And uh, Josh has some line where he's like, well, it's not about. Donna, this is a campaign for the presidency. And there's nothing I take more seriously than that. This can't be a place for people to come to find their confidence and start over. Why not? I'm sorry? Why can't it be those things? Because... Is it going to interfere with my typing? And he's like, "Uh, oh, good point. And then I think that's the last time he sees a point to her for like two seasons. But anyhow, (laughs) I just wish it didn't always have to be the women who are either... Like, it's goofy or they're being Mm -hmm. uh, irrational. Like, Mm -hmm. that's more Abby's cross to bear, unfortunately, (laughs) is like, well, you know, the the women are like being so emotional and they don't understand what I have to do. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, they understand. They just think you're full of it. (laughs) That's not the same thing. (laughs) So, yeah, Yeah. the show can be frustrating in that regard. And this pair of episodes it's not as bad as it can sometimes be mm-hmm. but i i agree with you that i wish that cj's introduction had been more b 
befitting CJ. I, I do wish that. I think that um, CJ is very serious business. And we have seen a lot of episodes in which CJ has as much policy knowledge, as much detail, like as anybody else. She can go toe to toe with any one of those guys, you know. And yet when we need to go like in the opening episode, in the pilot episode, right, the first thing we see of CJ is she's trying to flirt with this guy while she's running on a treadmill and then she falls off the treadmill. You know, Uh that's the first thing we see. And, you know, we've got this incredibly tall woman, you know, who is powerful and smart. And yet we undercut her with some rapidity, with some frequency, you know. Um, And I I do find that to be frustrating. Like uh, one of the things in one of the episodes that we did, I asked uh, Rebecca Lavoie, who does a lot of true crime podcasts, uh, who. Oh, yes. I was just on her Law and Order pod last week. Yes. Hi, Rebecca. Yes, Rebecca, we love her. Um, and she, I asked her, like, who would be most likely to just snap and kill people? And she's like, oh, CJ, absolutely. <laughs> because because they're all beneath her. And they're just, and they're constantly, like, you know, like, shoveling the shit downhill to, to CJ. And she's the one who has to, you know, dole it out to the press and, and deal with all this stuff. Um, but she is an incredibly, like, powerful character. And Allison Janney is an unparalleled actress. I mean, this woman can do pretty much anything. Um, she can do the high comedy. She can do the serious drama. She's unbelievable. But yeah, I just kind of really wish that we'd had a better introduction for her. Like, I actually do love the introduction that we get for Donna, where Donna goes in. She's a go-getter. She's like, I'm going to start answering your phones, even though you haven't hired me. And I love that moment from Donna, too, where she says, I think I can be good at this. I think you might find me valuable. You know, and I love that she has that, you know, she's like Agent Carter, like, I know my value, you know, Uh and even when Josh is talking down to her, even when Josh is mansplaining to her, like throughout the run, she never seems, you know, she's always like, yeah, whatever, I get it, you know, and, and she like always seems to know her value no matter what. And that's one of the things I really, really love about Donna and her brazenness when she comes into that office and says, you know, I'm Donna Moss. Who are you? I'm your new assistant. You know, all of that stuff is so fantastic. It's true. And I think that that's, I think it's fortunate that Mm -hmm. that character had Josh's number as far as his Joshiness from Mm -hmm. the jump. Yeah. So that, even though it was super annoying when he would talk down to her, to us, mm-hmm. she didn't care. Because she's like, oh, whatever. Like, she was on it. I mean, occasionally. Because he never made her doubt herself. She never doubted herself, no matter how he spoke to her. And there are a lot of times where she just blows off the way that he speaks to her and basically lays everything out for, for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one, I feel like CJ is allowed to, kick the shit that rolls onto her down Mm -hmm. to Sam sometimes. But then of course, in this set of episodes, um, there's the, you know, that he saves her. Oh yeah. Which is like kind of ridiculous. Cause like Mm -hmm. if anyone's going to cover someone else, like he's like half a head shorter. Exactly. (laughs) Then her, like the way they had to block that, if you watch it in Mm slow-mo is like, don't watch it in slow-mo. Cause it really kind of kills the... (laughs) Kind of kills the effect. Kills the, the heroism. Moment. The heroism that we get from Sam in that moment. And we have her, you know, she's, she's throughout this modern day story, she's touching her neck and her necklace is gone. And then she has that thing where she tells, you know, Toby that she doesn't want to do the morning shows. She thinks Sam should do the morning shows because she can't remember what happened. 
And then she, she, you know, brings him aside and says, I remember, I think that you have my necklace. And it's this heroic moment, you know, for him where he's like, well, I didn't want you to think that, you know, like, like I dream of Jeannie, which is the reference that he goes to. Yeah. And she's like, I was I didn't think I was going to be beholden to you. And he's like, oh, neat. (laughs) I mean, poor Sam. I think Sam gets it the worst of anyone because Rob Lowe is pretty. And I think. Like, I'm just trying to imagine these table reads where he's like, can I, could I not be the one with the Gilbert and Sullivan thing this time? And Sorkin's like, nope, you're the pretty one. Sorry. (laughs) You're the pretty guy. You got to carry all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's funny because Sam is, I mean, and that's the thing with Rob Lowe is that he is so like unreasonably pretty. You know, and it just has always like I've never taken him seriously. And it's and I feel like it doesn't say good things about me. Like I've never taken him seriously because of how incredibly pretty he is. I don't. Well, I don't know how old you are, but I am old enough to remember when Oxford Blues was on HBO, like during the day in the summertime every day. Oh, yeah. And I watched it every day (laughs) because he was like a. I mean, like literally a dish of food oh, that yeah. you wanted to devour. Like it's mm-hmm. not even sexual. It's like art. <laughs> and then he went through that weird period with the videotape and that, that oh, he was trying yeah. to play villains. And then he kind of had a little comeback with Wayne's World where he mm-hmm. didn't have a big part. Oh, right. One of but the first he... people to play themselves too. Yeah. And he yeah. didn't take himself seriously. I've mm-hmm. read one of his memoirs. It's quite good oh yeah he seems like a good egg mm-hmm. um but yeah he like he definitely took a ration on yeah. the west wing him <laughs> and poor margaret <laughs> oh yeah oh, a friend God. of mine had that as her ring to her, her name is margaret uh-huh. had that as her ringtone for a while <laughs> oh no <laughs> with leo, leo screaming margaret, margaret. Oh. oh oh my leo. god that's great how i wish there was a lani on the west wing so that i could have that that's a great experience for your friend margaret I know. It really, she may still have it. I hope she does. This was a while ago in the flip phone era. It was yes. very impressive that she oh, that she got that Was done. able to figure yeah. that out in the flip phone mm-hmm. era. That's, that's really yeah. serious business. I like this chick. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, okay. So Rob Lowe is too pretty. What did you think about him in the flashbacks as Sam, where he's working at this, this law office? He's got this incredibly high paying job. But if Josh comes back and says he's found the real thing, he's just going to leave that law office and go right, right. uh, um. Well, this is a parallel of the CJ problem, wouldn't you say? That -hmm. it's like, this is the kind of, I mean, I guess it, I guess it tracks. Like Sam does seem a little bit like he's a character, um, Mm -hmm. as a character who he's been like a little bit told where to stand his whole life. And he's Mm -hmm. just sort of stood there. But this again is like the wish fulfillment of like Fort Sorkin, that mm-hmm. more smart, um, progressive people would throw off the chains of um, co- corporate of law. Of success. And, yes. M&A. Yeah. <laughs> and like throw their law school loans to the wind. Right. I, I don't know what Seaborn situation is in that regard and be yeah. like sure let's go to uh, like let's go to New Hampshire and check out the whatever guy who's running right. forth mm-hmm. right now um and that he would do it that unprofessionally in the meeting is like I understand that this is tv and you don't right, have time for him drama. to like yeah trot up to HR like okay we're all grown-ups <laughs> we get it but there's something about like the, the CJ sequence and this sequence when 
you don't buy how it happened and mm-hmm. you don't buy that they were there in the first place. Like, right. I f- feel like Sam maybe would have been at some like, I don't know, IP startup. He would have been like in-house counsel for some like one of those um, webzines mm-hmm, that right. had a whole floor on Prince Street in Soho. Like, I just don't. <laughs> I don't know. Well, like, he's a I just speech didn't... writer, though. Like, I mean, he's there as a lawyer, and he's canceling right. these this oil company that's buying these these boats or these ships or whatever, right? And um, oh, they're ships, Lonnie. They're ships. I know. <laughs> Apparently, there's a difference. I don't know the difference either, but you know, they're obviously ships because they're very, very expensive. I, well, um, here's the difference: if yes. your client oh. wants you to call it a ship. You call, it a, call ship. it a ship. If they've got $11 million that you can ask them to spend to buy a better ship, then you call it a ship, right? <laughs> yeah, paint the SS ship on the side, whatever that's the client right. wants. That's Are you right. New? They want you to call it a monkey. That's what you do. You just call it whatever they want to call it. But it, here exactly. he is, like, you know, like we don't get a sense of him as a wordsmith. We don't get a sense of him as a speechwriter. Like, Toby, you get a sense of him as like a speechwriter, you know, like even when he's getting drunk with that woman in the bar (laughs) and the way that he's so quick with his um you know with his responses to her and i mean it's just it's such an adorable little exchange where the woman's like you've been uh um what you call it professional political operative you've been one your whole life well there was a while there i was in elementary school (laughs) you're any good at it What's your record? My record? How many elections have you won? Altogether? Including city council, two congressional races, Senate race, gubernatorial campaign, and a national campaign. he's you know he comes in and admits that he's lost like all of the elections that he's worked on and he's pretty sure he's going to get fired and it's an adorable little like you know movement back and forth and the dialogue is great and when we're with Sam you don't get as much you know a sense from Sam that he's this verbal wordsmith you know well and the funny thing is too that Toby like on this show where everybody is just like um profligaciously wordy mm-hmm. because that's the show right mm-hmm. toby is like the one character who is allowed to or maybe this is the one actor who was allowed mm-hmm. to do this who is allowed to be like you're allowed to watch him considering his response mm-hmm. yeah that he has so many ellipses mm-hmm. in his, his speech and like there's so much that he doesn't say yeah and the I was thinking a lot about this because I watched this particular sequence back a couple of times to mm-hmm. try to like unpack wh- like why it's so good. Mm-hmm. When Toby is like sort of wandering around, the shooting has just happened. He's looking for Josh and he comes upon Josh. Oh, yeah. And he can't like it's that nightmare where you're mm-hmm. screaming at right. whoever, your ex or t- some monster mm-hmm. and you can't make a sound like huge mm-hmm. lungfuls of air are passing through you and no sound is happening mm-hmm. and that is toby sort of being like i, 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 I need help you know where to call you? 
To have that character, who is often so far back in the um, recesses of his own mm-hmm. pondering, I guess, or anxiety, um, I may be projecting somewhat, <laughs> uh, that to have to give that character this, like, difficulty mm-hmm. finding the words and oh, to yeah. express so perfectly the, the nightmarish quality of coming upon your yeah. friend and colleague shot on the ground. Uh, I think that might be the most um, harrowing moment of the two oh, yeah. episodes. And there are a few, but that oh, yeah. one is just like, you really just feel, you really just feel it with him. Yeah. And he has this little quiet space around him, that character mm-hmm. that I just, I love. And I love like watching him, like whatever he's sort of like fondling his uh, furrows on in his yes. bald spot, <laughs> that it's like you're watching Toby's mind work, but you're also mm-hmm. watching the actor working, and it's just really cool. It's fun. It's like processy yeah. on two levels, which I like. Yeah, it's very funny because Toby actually um, does less, I think, speechifying than a lot of the characters do, but there's something about the way he uses the words that he's given. You know, the way that he expresses that Richard Schiff, I think, in in this role and everything I've ever seen him do is incredible at saying so much with what is in between the, the actual words that he's given. Um, and it's incredibly powerful. Like, I love, you know, that, uh, you know, where he's uh, the woman is like, how come you're drinking so much during the day? And he's just like, I'm about to get fired. So let me ask you something. Sure. How come you're drinking so much so early in the day? I'm about to get fired. And we just see this. (laughs) And he's so good at expressing that. And in that, oh, God, in that moment where he finds Josh, you know, and he he hollers for help, but he's, he's powerless to holler as loud as he wants to. And it really is incredible. And then Josh falls over and he catches Josh as Josh is, you know, tumbling to the side. It is, is so incredibly beautiful and so powerful. And Richard Schiff, honestly, is is one of the most amazing actors. What he can do in between the words. And when you're given words from a guy like Aaron Sorkin. You know, I mean, that's already like an incredible thing because Aaron Sorkin, whatever his faults are, words are not one of them. Like the way that he puts those words together is unbelievable. Um, and for, for Toby, for for Richard Schiff to be able to put so much in the space between the words, like when, when Richard Schiff pauses in the middle of a sentence and you can see that mind working, you can see everything going on. It's it's so packed it's it's honestly unbelievable. Like I I think that Toby and CJ are my favorite characters to watch. Just to watch the performers deliver what they do because they're so incredible at it. Yeah, and there's not like it's not like they're um, indicating. Mm-hmm. They're just like you're just watching the character think. Like he has certain little um, false starts that he makes, mm-hmm. right. and then um, I don't know if. I don't know if you've watched A Few Good Men at all or oh, recently. I watch it every semester. I make my kids, uh, my students in my screenwriting class read the script. And yes, I know it very well. <laughs> it is It is really, it's really good. And Tom yeah. Cruise is, I think that's Tom Cruise's best and most charming performance. I'm oh, a crackpot. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. But um, Kevin Pollack's character, I can't remember the character's name. Sam Weinstein. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't know why Seriously, I thought you wouldn't respond semester. to that prompt. Every semester. Um, <laughs> I Well done. I would have loved to have that class. Uh, mm-hmm. He's like a proto-Toby mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, he's not no, absolutely. A, he's not given a lot to do, but he gets a lot in there. And there's also that same... Um, there's that same sense of like starting a thought, uh-huh. pulling it back, but like tweaking it a little and then having the thought. And uh, yeah. he doesn't, he's not vain about it, which given that that's, I think maybe that's a Sorkin mm-hmm. uh, type. Yeah. Not, not trope, but that there might be like in every but Sorkin he's got, project, yeah. there is a there lane might be a for that guy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, but you're absolutely right. He is a proto-Toby. That's crazy. And I love that character, too. I mean, he's so fantastic. And he is kind of the secondary, you know, thing. But it's it's he expresses himself succinctly, but powerfully. Yeah. And he's just he's just happy to be there, I think. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, poor, poor Demi Moore. I mean, she oh, tries, yeah. but sometimes oh, no. it's like you should have worked out like seriously, you need some respiratory control <laughs> to get through some of these dialogue <laughs> arias because that's yeah. what they are. They are. No, it's musical And sometimes theater. you could yeah. see her like running out of air like mm-hmm. two thirds of the way through the paragraph. She's like, <gasps> like, oh, yeah. honey, I, I get tough. it. It's it's tough. And that's a tough, I mean, that's a tough, like, you know, not to get too much into A Few Good Men, but obviously I've been thinking about this a lot, like the character that Demi Moore has, is that she's, she opens up as she should be the protagonist. She's the one who has the goal. She's the one who's there trying to get something done. She's in there. She's the underdog. It's all set up for her to be the most amazing protagonist. And then they shove her off to the side and let Daniel Caffey take over, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's such a shame. Mm Mm-hmm. Daddy oh, issues just, must be I redeemed. Exactly, exactly. We need Tom Cruise with daddy issues. That's the whole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need another movie with Tom Cruise with daddy issues because we I, have that's, those. Yeah, so many, so many elevator pitches come right exactly. down to those little brass tacks, don't they? <laughs> exactly. Anyway, sorry to derail us into uh, feature film. No, that's film. okay. That's okay. You and I were going to chat definitely about that off mic. But <laughs> okay. But uh, so we've got all this stuff happening. Um, and one of the things that, that I really love is that we open up, you know, when we've got the president being shot and Ron Butterfield, who is the toughest, most badass Secret Service, his hand has been shot. He's trying to get the president back. The president is worried about Zoe, who's throwing up in another limousine. Is anybody dead back there? We don't know. We don't think so. What happened to your hand? I got you. Oh, God. Coop, turn around. we got to go to the hospital. We've got to get you to the We're White House. We're going to the hospital. Let's go. I have to put you inside the White House, Mr. President. This isn't something we discuss. This is... My daughter is throwing up on the floor in the car behind us. You're losing blood by the leader, not to mention God knows how many broken bones you got in your hand. But let's make sure that I'm tucked in bed before... Mr. Mr. President... Now, here's my question without being like a pedantic jerk, right? He got shot in the lower abdomen, right? Because I mean, if Uh blood is coming up through your mouth, it's got to be from the lungs or from the stomach. But he got shot in the lower abdomen. Like, either his anatomy is really, really different from everybody else, and he's actually an alien. But I mean, the blood through the mouth thing just seemed weird to me. I don't know. Well, here's. 
here's how I'm going to retcon this. And I'm okay, usually go. completely unforgiving and the pedanticest, jerkiest, pedantic <laughs> jerk about this stuff. But let's let's do it this way. Okay. He, I mean, the bullet like went in his lower abdomen, like went around every major organ, nicked uh-huh. his spleen and went out the back, right. right? So he was basically like up and walking around like three hours later. Uh-huh. 25th, notwithstanding. Right. We'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. But here's here's what I'm gonna here's how I'm gonna wreck on it, the blood in his mouth because I think when Butterfield realizes there's a serious problem, he has actually checked the president's torso and has pulled back his hand and there's blood mm-hmm. in his hand mm-hmm. from the president's belly. Yeah, I'm gonna say that when he was tackled to the ground, Reagan Brady styley, right, that he mm-hmm. bit his tongue. Oh, maybe that'd be interesting. Because actually, that was the thing they were they were playing on Reagan with this, because that was mm-hmm. the thing that made the the Secret Service guy know that Reagan was hurt was that there was blood coming from his mouth. Yeah. So they were playing. Nota with bene. That. I am almost positive that this was not intended by the writing, and that <laughs> right. there was no like script note that was like, oh, he just bit his tongue, and if anyone right. asks, this was mm-hmm. not a medical. If anyone blah, blah, blah. asks, <laughs> right. But I was yeah, like, and I'm sure Martin Sheen's like, well, the thing is, I was in a war movie, like just bite on the, just bite on the exactly. sword, Marty. Don't <laughs> just, just this go is ahead. like take just go eighteen. Just right. I know. Let, let's just get this done. It's it's a long damn day. We only got the limos for a few more hours. Just do it. Then <laughs> <laughs> we got to return them to Lorelai Gilmore. <laughs> exactly. Get them down to New Hampshire. Oh God! Oh. So you know we get this wonderful thing, and he's in the the hospital, and he's joking around, and he's he's doing all of these jokes about everything, and just being really you know fun and charming the way that he always is. But the thing one one of the things that I love about the West Wing is that in essence, the West Wing is really the love story about Jed Bartlett and Leo McGarry. That this we're constantly telling the story. We have no moment. You know, Abby gets there. He's already in surgery. She talks to the doctor. She tells him that he's got MS, this whole thing, right? But the moment that we have is with Leo and the president, and the president kisses Leo. (laughs) We don't see him kiss Abby, but he kisses Leo. And the relationship between these two men, and one of the things that, like, I, you know, is, is one of my, like, things that I love when it happens in pop culture is when we have really strong, really affectionate male masculine relationships. Like, a lot of times... We fall to this, you know, men are men and they're just like, oh, punch you on the shoulder and that's all there is, you know, and that there is there's no like human connection between the male characters that we see. We see women brought into community. Now we're talking about Gilmore Girls, right? You know, the women are in community and the men are always kind of on the outside just being manly, you know. And one of the things that I love is when we get stories that that really explore the masculine community, the masculine side of that, that caring and nurturing for each other and, and that genuine love. And when I see that pop up, I mean, throughout this survey that I've done on Jed Bartlett is my president, I've I've run through a handful of episodes, you know, and every time I see that love story pop up between Leo and Bartlett, it's always so incredibly heartwarming to me. And we, we get it, you know, like, really briefly in this episode, but I found it interesting that the person that we have Bartlett speaking to when he's in the hospital, the person that he kisses is not his wife. It's Leo. Yeah. There's a talent in pop culture writing that I always appreciate because I have a work spouse of almost two decades, my Mm -hmm. non-carnal life partner, Tara Ariano. (laughs) Hi Tara. Um, And 
it's really hard, I think, for showrunners and writers of feature features also mm-hmm. to resist that like network or executive note that there has to be like a love story or eventually like the pigtail pulling has right. to lead to love or mm-hmm. like, you know, fans on the internet do it too, like shipping things. And now it's sort of ironic, but not really. But that mm-hmm. like work spouse bond, especially in a high stress job like this, where your job is you and yeah. it's your whole life, that Sorkin is actually pretty good at writing that. Like, Going back to a few good men, I don't mm-hmm. think there's any sense that um, that these any of these people are supposed to become romantically involved. Maybe it just mm-hmm. got cut, but I never got that sense. And the movie is not about that. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be about that. Um, and there's also that sense between Kathy and the Kevin Bacon character that they go oh, yeah. back a mm-hmm. long time. They know each other really well. There is that familiarity. Uh, mm-hmm. Sleepy Hollow did this really well. It went off the rails big time <laughs> in the latter seasons. And once Nicole Bahari left the show, it was a problem because mm-hmm. the actors and the writing had this extremely strong, not sexual, but almost familial mm-hmm. partner bond. David Fincher is very good at directing and or writing movies like Zodiac. This is a thing. The mm-hmm. depiction of partners, both at the newspaper, at on the police force, uh, is excellent and is familiar. It looks like mm-hmm. real friendships and not like plot um, boxes that are being right. rearranged and like Tetris together. These are like yeah. actual people. Uh, so that relationship on the West Wing... And sort of all of the interlocking relationships to various uh, degrees of mm-hmm. success, but particularly the president and Leo. Yeah. Um, and that long, that long familiarity, that familial like tolerance and teasing and the mm-hmm. elasticity of that friendship over the seasons is, I think, really fantastic and just fun to see like... Uh, at rest, I guess, mm-hmm. yeah. for lack of a better term, because not every moment between them is charged. Right. Sometimes they're just sort of looking at each other like, uh, and then leaves like, I'll take care of it. And <laughs> they are very similar um, actors. They don't like, they don't really look alike, but they're both mm-hmm. um, kind of short, kind of craggy. Kinda... They got that energy. Yes, yeah. they have mm-hmm. that, they have that uh pistol energy yes Mm -hmm. but leo is i think leo thinks he's more of a badass than bartlett thinks bartlett is a badass oh yeah absolutely we have that whole thing in the past too because leo is the one who knows leo knows all the way through like exactly who bartlett is exactly what needs to happen he's the one behind the scenes like pulling all the strings and we have him you know in the past where he fires all of bartlett's people you just fired cal memphis yeah you fired him yeah and uh jerry and mac and steve and the other guy is there anyone you kept 
I kept Toby Ziegler. Oh, you kept Toby Ziegler and you fired everybody else. Yeah. Toby Ziegler is the only person working for us I don't know, and he's the one you kept. Take him home, would you? Those were the only people I knew. Those people were worthless. It's time we bring in what we need. Which is how we get all of these people in. We get Josh and we get Sam, mm-hmm. we get CJ, you know, Toby. He, Toby, who is certain he's going to get fired, is the only one who doesn't get fired, you know? Um, and Leo just runs the whole thing. And when Bartlett is like... You know, I got elected to Congress by this state. This state sent me to Congress three times and then elected me governor, all without your help. Don't start. No, seriously, that's, that's a real political accomplishment considering your family. Family founded this state. Hey. Were you even opposed in any of those elections? Leo is absolutely, he'll stand up to Bartlett. You know, he'll go toe to toe with Bartlett at any moment. And they have like this really great relationship. And you know, that work spouse thing, as you were talking about that, like we see that in Studio 60, you know, with the characters by Matt, Matt Perry and Bradley Whitford. That's true. Um, I really. I really wanted that to, I really wanted that to go. Like, oh, I just, yeah. just stay in that office. Like, just make it a bottle. Show. Exactly. A bottle show. Forget a bottle episode. Bottle show. Absolutely. Yeah. Just have these two guys together. Because every yeah, time you go out, it's like, here are these hilarious skits, and here's Harriet, and it's a whole thing. It's like, that's that's not going to work. No, no, no. Yeah. Back, in, back in your office. Back in your no. hole. <laughs> I know. But when uh, when Perry and Whitford were just together, and it was just them, before they made, uh, they made uh, Bradley Whitford's character go insane. Oh, yeah. Uh, with the stalking and all, which is another thing that, you know, I don't need to get into that now. But no. Sorkin, Sorkin no. loves a guy who won't take no for an answer, which is oh, otherwise yeah. known as a sexual offender. So, <laughs> you know, you really get, there's a point where it stops being cute. And it's usually after the first time the girl has said no and he hasn't accepted it. So yeah, uh, that's mean, just something that, yeah. I know that that is an unfortunate. I mean, look, we all saw say anything. Some of us felt the police should have been called well before the boombox even showed up. I'm just saying. I know. But this idea that if I'm like, if I just keep insisting, you know, that that she didn't say no to me and like, I'm coming for you, Jordan, like that kind of stuff. And we saw that in sports night, too. We had a little bit of that. But we also had that lovely, you know, work spouse relationship and sports night as well between the two men. And I think that's something that Sorkin does rather well and and really nicely. And so I do like it's actual spouse relationships where exactly. It's oh, actual Dana's romantic relationships. Plan. Yeah. Yeah. Things like, things oh. fall apart for Sorkin in those. Yeah. <laughs> they, it's just they it's do. bad news. Oh, <laughs> Which is a shame. You know, I mean the thing is, is Also that when he tries got... to go on the internet, that's that's not good either. Oh I know. <laughs> you know, we just I did uh the episode that had uh the lemonlyman dot com, which is based on Aaron Sorkin going on the internet trying to deal with the people who were Oh yeah. yeah. Trolling us. I yeah. you know what's funny too? I was um Watching this again, because the famous line there was that uh, everyone's like sitting around these fat people and their moo-moos chain smoking <laughs> parliaments. Mm-hmm. And then the the um, guy on the ground in, in the shadow of two gunmen who they catch outside that yes. diner, mm-hmm. he's smoking parliaments. What is right, Aaron so- Sorkin and Parley's? I don't know. I mean, I honestly, it's like the state honestly, bird of New Jersey. Like it is a whatever. But <laughs> well, parliaments too. What are you too, trying like, to say? I- I don't think I've seen a pack of parliaments. Are they still, do they still make them? Is I... that a thing that's still, 
I have no idea. I remember I worked in a grocery store when I was in high school and I remember the parliaments then, you know, and I think that there is a very particular kind of person who smokes parliaments and I think they're all dead now. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's, it's it's pretty crazy. But yeah, it's kind of interesting how you've got the chain smoking parliaments. Well, because at the time, like, you know, this mm-hmm. was after we'd kicked him off the television without pity boards or whatever happened. Like, yes. I forget that even happened half the time. <laughs> and my official response was, Actually, they're camel lights because yeah. that's what I smoked back then. And I was like, and uh, furthermore, we prefer the term caftan, like whatever. <laughs> like you have oh to be flattered. God. What what else can you do? But he's, there's something with parliaments. Maybe that's a like, maybe that's a in the rooms thing. It's, it's an AA? evocative detail. It this is. This is the thing. Like, and that's as like the best writers know how to take the tiniest detail and make it into something that is evocative. And I have to say the smoking of parliaments is an evocative detail. You know, it's one of those things that like you see, you know, because I, I remember the people who bought the parliaments and they were in the 1980s when I was in the grocery store as a teenager. Oh, yeah. They no, were no. old then, you know. Uh-huh. And they, they were the ladies who would have them in the like sequined little coin purse that they oh, would yeah. open with the snap top. Yeah. And then they'd have a little lipstick ring around. Them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nothing yeah, but class. A, evocative detail i'm telling you that's the thing that's it's one true, of the things but sometimes yeah. he repeats those little evocative details oh, those no. little character beats and you're like you gotta hire someone to go back and exactly. make sure you didn't he's use a this huge one. repeater sorkin yeah. uses the same stuff you'll see the same things coming back over and over again in all of his in all of his work and i don't even mind it so much i'm just because the, the thing that i love about sorkin and i have to say like his dialogue he he studied musical theater he actually went to syracuse university which is where i teach and where i went to school um and uh and he had a musical theater um degree from there and you can see like he has this this uncanny knowledge of gilbert and sullivan which everybody in all of his episodes shares everybody knows gilbert and sullivan although i don't I think anybody so... knows it like sorkin does. No, it's so quaint that it's like the number of straight people right i know it's it's a very very small group yeah straight men who know like who have a depth of field in yes minor gilbert and sullivan <laughs> in sorkin properties outnumbers like the lifetime number like even gilbert was like what exactly. i don't remember that one i don't remember i don't know if that was pirates of penzance or hms pinafore i don't okay, even was know that the I, Mikado? I don't exactly <laughs> Someone get a PA in here. I don't even know. I could, where are my parliaments? I don't take I my work this think. seriously, Sorkin. Yes, oh. exactly. <laughs> but I mean, he's. But the thing is, like his experience in musical theater, you can see that that his his dialogue isn't just dialogue, but it's lyrical. And yeah. that's the thing that, like, as as a writer, I look at that and I just think, oh my god, it's it's unbelievable. And there there are a, a handful of writers that leave me in that kind of awe. You know, Joss Whedon is one of them. Aaron Sorkin is one of them. You know, where the work that they do, I just look at it and I think, oh my god. And Joss Whedon is more like he's got great dialogue, but his ability to see like the big picture of a story and how it plays out and how to make sure you maximize like the emotional torment is is at genius level and with with Sorkin it's his ability to write dialogue that is truly musical um, yeah he does have an ear yeah like the structuring has an ear to it mm-hmm. that um 
sort of the whole of what's happening is greater than the sum of the parts. Like when you look at everything that's happening, um, it's a well-made show. It's a beautifully Mm -hmm. acted show. And yet still some of these speeches like are speeches that, Mm -hmm. that, and shouldn't be in um, like organic situations. But because he has that expert ear, yeah, Yeah. the actors are very good, but also it's like, um, like it's watertight, I guess, for for lack of a better phrase. Well, he's one of the few people who can do that. I I teach a screenwriting class at Syracuse, and, and I always tell my students, I'm like, when you see a big block of text in your script... Go and cut Don't. it. Like yeah. you can cut it by like fifty percent, it'll be fine. But then we have these wonderful speeches. Like there's this moment with CJ at the press briefing at the end. This is our fifth press briefing since midnight, and obviously there's one story that's going to be dominating the news around the world for the next few days. And uh, it would be easy to think that President Bartlett, Joshua Lyman, and Stephanie Abbott were the only people who were victims of a gun crime last night. They weren't. Mark Davis and Sheila Evans of Philadelphia were killed by a gun last night. He was a biology teacher and she was a nursing student. Tina Bishop and Belinda Larkin were killed with a gun last night. They were 12. There were 36 homicides last night, 480 sexual assaults, 3,411 robberies, 3,685 aggravated assaults, all at gunpoint. And if anyone thinks those crimes could have been prevented if the victims themselves had been carrying guns, I'd only remind you that the President of the United States was shot last night while surrounded by the best-trained armed guards in the history of the world. But she goes through and she like lists all of these people, all these people who had died, these people who had been attacked, all this stuff at gun violence, and turns it into this, this broader context with this huge speech. And it's so incredibly powerful and effective. Whereas most speeches that are that long, like you can't pull them off, but Sorkin will pull them off three, four times in a single episode. And you're being lectured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it still works. Because it there's something works. about, well, all right, here, here comes poetry major Buncey coming at you. Ah. <laughs> the um, <clears throat> buckle up, Wordsworthian right. concept of song as the original uh, speech. Uh-huh. That uh, as humans were evolving, uh, singing was more visceral and direct and faster to communicate whatever you needed to. Danger, mm-hmm. emotion, um, we're switching caves, don't forget the cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this idea, um, which Sorkin clearly must be aware of, yes, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's conscious or not, that this idea of using the um, build of mm-hmm. song uh, in quote-unquote regular speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it drives a lot of, or it, it lets this succeed for him. Mm-hmm. Not to take away his agency in writing it, but this mm-hmm. idea of, um, like, I think this is in the preface to Lyrical Ballads, as your listeners flee to unsubscribe. No, I'm so sorry. I'm going to wrap this up. My listeners are going to freaking love this. Oh trust me. God. Get a life, listeners. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, thank, thank, you for letting me, thank you for letting me ramble on like no, this. No, this is brilliant. Keep yeah, going. But keep this, going. I think that this, uh, this idea that there's a rhythm or a, like a sound and the, uh-huh. the way that poetry is built with yeah. uh, parallel structure – 
alliteration, mm -hmm. all of those devices that you use, you can build these speeches to like work almost in spite of themselves. And the gun violence thing, like when she went into it, my notes were mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, I remember this. Give me a break. And then I had no more notes because yes. <laughs> the delivery, like he uses anaphora. Mm -hmm. There is a delivery to it. That's very, um, Oh wait, what's anaphora? Anaphora. God. I'm not Anaphora a poetry like, major, baby. I don't know what this stuff is. <laughs> you do. You just don't think you do. Like they throw right. a Greek term on it and you're like, I'm an idiot. Oh, wait, it's that. Like, you you know what it is. Basically, like it's, um, I think it's parallel structure at the beginning of lines. So uh -huh. it's like the same set of words. So instead mm -hmm. of like alliteration, it's like the same. Well, now I'm going to oh, have okay. to look it up. Well, I'm going to look it up, too. God, I'm you getting keep smarter talking. just hanging with you. <laughs> you keep talking. I feel well, like I'm I'll confusing talk about that with another other, term. We actually have a couple of other speeches in here. We get the one from Ron Butterfield when Toby goes to talk to him. Ron, I don't think it's right that the Secret Service be blamed for what happened last night. I want the Treasury Department to hand over my memo to the press. No, we can't do that. There are going to be a lot of questions. There are always a lot of questions. Ron. Don't worry about it, Toby. It's not right. You know the guys... Look at your hand. My hand is fine. Your hand is not fine. Toby. Let me go over there and tell him that it was my fault. It wasn't your fault. Ron. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't Gina's fault. It wasn't Charlie's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault, Toby. It was an act of madmen. You think a temp was going to stop him? We got the president in the car. We got Zoe in the car. And at 150 yards and five stories up, the shooters were down 9.2 seconds after the first shot was fired. I would never let you not let me protect the president. You tell us you don't like something, we figure out something else. It was an act of madmen. It wasn't your fault. It wasn't Gina's fault. It wasn't Charlie's fault. Is that anaphora? That's what you're talking about? Yes. And having there looked it up, the repetition of a word or phrase at the beginning of successive clauses, which sort of builds um, tension. And also when you are giving a speech or you're delivering a um, story, the oral tradition of Homeric poems oh. by rest of your listeners. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. No, my listeners are going to love this. I, I hope Be so. Be smart, baby. That, uh, smart is sexy. Go for it. Keep I can, going. <laughs> I can't help it, baby. You can't um, help it. That it builds, um, it, there is a like call and response quality to it that yeah. it lets the listener or the viewer um, mm -hmm. know what's coming next, that there is a familiarity to the structure. Uh, I mean, and you fall this... into that rhythm, right? Yeah. It's, the... it's Ron opens with, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't Gina's fault. It wasn't Charlie's fault. It wasn't anybody's fault, Toby. And that, uh, that accent mm -hmm. does not hurt because the, yeah. he has that like just bourbon yeah. flavored accent and that authoritative mustache, but also there's oh, yeah. the <laughs> construction of these speeches <laughs> that has like, even within an episode, there's like a mini episode in the speech, like yes. beginning, mm -hmm. middle, end, and little aural signposts uh, for viewers and listeners to know where you are in the story, even if you've never heard the story before. This is how mm -hmm. um, the Iliad and the Odyssey and actually probably the Aeneid were delivered for oh, wow. centuries. That is very, very cool. I feel like I've just I've just learned something new. That's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love try. it. But we do get you know, you're good. You're somewhere good. Like somewhere you. my dad was like, Oh, did did that education I paid for actually exactly. stick? <laughs> yes, you were able to use it on an episode of Jed Bartlett is my president, which of course is the every little girl's dream, right? <laughs> 
I didn't know it was my dream until it happened. Until it happened, and then it happens. I'm glad we could all uh, have this moment together. I know. No, this is really this is really big. No, but I love it. Now I'm looking through all the speeches. We get this one great moment from Nancy McNally, who is one of my favorite characters oh, in the whole thing. Oh my God, she's so great. But I love this where uh, Leo says Fitz Wallace agrees with me, Nancy. And he upgrade in our DEFCON posture and the whole world's gonna wake up in the middle of the night. The world's awake, Leo. Look at the TV, look out the window. Now there was more than one shooter. We think they had a guy on the ground. If we think they had one, we have no reason to believe they didn't have more than one. Somebody had to get him into that office. This wasn't a lonely guy who lived with his cats. There was a plan. And one of the things we have to assume is that we are under attack right now. And Anna Devere Smith coming from the theater has a just innate and also having written so much for the theater has this innate sense of how to time these things she keeps it rapid fire she's a very imposing Mm -hmm. person on screen Mm -hmm. to this day the way that she does the air quotes on the stand in philadelphia with her whole hand to ethnic i believe was the term (laughs) he used God, I love her. She is amazing. She is amazing. And honestly, one of my favorite people. And it makes me crazy that they call her Nancy and not Dr. McNally. But that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Oh, and that line, the way that she's just like, could you get someone to bring me some clothes from my office? I look like an idiot. I'm like, it is really not possible. (laughs) No, she is such serious business. I love her so much. Like, there's this one thing where Toby says, Customarily, if the president's going to be under a general anesthetic. He's got to sign a letter giving the vice president power? Absent the 25th, the Constitution doesn't give it to him unless the president's dead. He's hemorrhaging and he's supposed to draft a memo? Yeah. And even just the way she delivers that one word is... Uh, incredible like I stand in awe every time she's in an episode I am completely you know enthralled by her until she's off the screen again she's fantastic and speaking of uh, actresses Mm -hmm. of color that we love and are always relieved to see how nice is it to see Beverly Hills 90210's Mrs. Teasley working the phone (laughs) in the emergency room Yeah, she it was really great. Is comforting. It's like if she put up a Steve Sanders bullshit all those years, exactly. I'm pretty sure she could handle a code blue. I think she can. Thank God. No, I love that where she's like, look, I got some people here. I mean, they put so much character into that. They really did. You know, for her. And she was so great. And she's like, nope, we're serious. We're serious now. You know, she's like, is this a drill they're pulling up behind her? Oh, it's so good. So good. Exactly. I know. There's so much incredible stuff in here. I mean, there really is. And it's like, you can't possibly get it all down you know one of the things too that I loved as long as we're hopping around um, one of the things that I hate and let me know if this is something that you've ever like come up against because it, it makes me crazy whenever anybody gets bad news right you know in any kind of drama right you say oh so and so is dead and they go what right and I hate the what because it's just like you heard what they said and I understand that you're shocked but there are better ways to show your shock and what I love is the way that they show Donna's shock when she came in they tell her about Josh got here as fast as I could I had a hard time getting in I I had I had to find an agent who knew me and I I was shaking it was just I didn't know anything Donna Josh was hit hit with what he was shot in the chest He's in surgery right now. I don't understand. I don't understand. Is is it serious? And that's one of the things, like, I think Aaron Sorkin has never done that shocked. What? You know, and I honestly, it's such a tiny thing, but I appreciate that 
so much because I hate when people do that. They do that in everything. He, and you don't see it here, but he also did, mm-hmm. um, the, my pet peeve is the, uh, what was it you were going to say? Mm-hmm. Nothing. And then the other yeah. person just becomes completely incurious and is like, well, your face just fell clean off your head based on mm-hmm. what I just said. But I guess I won't follow up because we barely know each other. And there's a commercial like, what? <laughs> Sorkin never does that. Yep. And if he does, he has someone in the scene call it out. That it's like, we're just going <laughs> to leave that there. You looked pretty concerned. And also you're sweating. Like, thank right. you. God. There are a lot of things Sorkin does that I'm not keen, but at least that he's like, I'm not doing that cliche. And in fact, I'm going to shit all over it. Like, thank you. Right. I mean, he has, he has, Sorkin has tropes and pitfalls that are specific to him, Mm -hmm. but he does not traffic in cliches, which I really, really appreciate about him because that gets so old after a while, you know? And I love the way that, that Donna reacts to this. And we also had, there was an episode of, um, of the West Wing in which, uh, CJ, um, CJ's dating the, the um, Mark Harmon character, oh, Simon, sure. and he gets shot and everything. And her reaction to that is the same. It's like, but no, but he was just like, it's denial. And that's the way that people respond. And that's the way that feels emotionally genuine. Whereas that that incredibly stupid, what? You know, like nobody says that. That's not a real thing. Like, you know, it's just it's just this weird TV cliche, you know. Yeah, that her whole like hit by what? Like that's yeah, probably what I, I would know. say. Exactly. <laughs> like, because you just have that, that by moment, a bat you know. Or... Yeah. yeah, but hit by what? Like, because you, you have to be specific because the, the ability to wrap your mind around something that shocking and that outside of your experience, you know, um, is is such it's such a difficult thing, I think, to express. And Sorkin does that kind of traumatic shock so beautifully. And, you know, the way that he does it, it's just really, really great. And I love I love that they did that. And I hated, you know, I hated every time I see that in something else, you know, in any other TV show, I'm like, Oh, my God, please stop. Well, it's you know? difficult to do, too, because sometimes mm-hmm. like sort of the big moments in your life are not like written for you. Yes, in this exactly. um, sort of elegant uh, fashion that gets you from um, act three to act four. Right. Uh, in the script, or in the story. So mm-hmm. It can be difficult to, like, this is a, you know, this is a medium that requires that something be happening or Mm -hmm. someone be talking and explaining what's going on at, in moments where that might not be happening in life. And Mm -hmm. he's pretty good at doing that. And then, like, he just, you know, does what he has to do Mm -hmm. with it. And it's not, sometimes it's too much, Mm -hmm. but you always have to sort of. Um, great on the curve of like, you know, this is a visual and audio medium and you can't, mm-hmm. you can't just sort of have nothing happen or have people like staring into space for 10 minutes. Right. Like, I exactly. guess you could. I'm sure that's a show on <laughs> Sundance right now. But I'm sure there's right. <laughs> like on a network, you have to have somebody mm-hmm. talking or like at least a cello. You, you got to keep feel. things moving. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Have that little oboe playing in the background. <laughs> Something's going to be going oh, on. Oh, the flute of doom. The flute of doom. All right. Well, I think I've hit most of the stuff that I wanted to talk about in this. Is there anything else that you wanted to hit on for this episode? For these um, episodes? I don't think so. I did want to um, tip my hat, even though he's yes. barely on screen, to Tim mm-hmm. Matheson as Hoynes. Oh, Yes. He is such a like such an economical sketch 
yes. this is a character we're supposed to think is um, despicable. I guess he is, but like, mm-hmm. I don't know. In our current situation, you kind of long for a, a faux bush type at this point. Exactly. Maybe. I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth. Don't right. email me. But it's such a flawless portrayal of that kind yes. of like mm-hmm. entitled, unsure uh guy and then Mm -hmm. his face he's like talking to who is he talking to the uh, women's championship volleyball team oh right when the secret service comes in and yes and the secret service comes in and the look on his face that he's like exhilarated but also horrified like i felt i I felt like i smelled a little bit of pee yes exactly (laughs) and it was like no one's paying attention to this part of it, except to be mm-hmm. like, ooh, Hoynes is in charge, yikes. But yeah. then there's that little moment, like everybody just gets their little moments, and there's so many that you can point to over the course of the series, like tertiary yeah. characters having mm-hmm. 12 seconds to get that done, and they pretty much always do. Oh, yeah. Well, no, and I love it when they sit him down in the sit room, Right. Uh-huh. He's going up against Nancy McNally, who knows so much more. And he's like, this signal guy isn't in custody in one hour. I'm going to federalize the Virginia and Maryland National Guard. It's worth mentioning that at this moment, we do not know the whereabouts of about a half dozen cell leaders, including bin Laden. But that's not my concern right now. And he's all like trying to swing his very, very tiny vice president I dick know. around. And then <laughs> Nancy. And the whole room is like, this is all. It's like, this is not going to work, you know? But Nancy McNally throughout that whole thing is like, no, here is what's actually happening. Somebody should put me in charge, but nobody's going to because I'm a woman of color. So whatever. But still. (laughs) And also nobody signed anything. That's going to be a whole thing. And Leo's like, look, you were the one who said you should get more allowance. She's like, okay, here's how this is going to go. You're going to get a savings (laughs) account. And Hoynes is like, but mom. Yeah. And all these military no, guys really sort of like mm-hmm. staring into their laps, like, please don't giggle. Please don't giggle. Exactly. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> this is terrifying. I think there was a lot of pee in that sit room. I just have to <laughs> say. <laughs> I, when, when now Hoyes we must end the episode the because you can't, there we go. you can't top. There was, there was a ton of pee in that sit room. They had to mop that out for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think that'll do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. Sadly, it's time to turn off the morphine drip and get back to the real world where there's real work to be done. But I hope this little break has given you the strength to crawl out of the pool in your clingy clothes and get back in the fight. Thank you, Sarah D. Bunting, for hanging out with me this week. It was so much fun. Tell the good people where they can find you. Well, you can find me at previously.tv. That's my website about TV. Shocker. Uh, (laughs) You can find me all over the iTunes airwaves, but specifically my true crime podcast is The Blotter Presents, and my Beverly Hills 90210 podcast is called Again With This, and I'm also (laughs) the publisher of TomatoNation.com. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. Oh, so much fun to have you. I just want to sit and talk to you all day, every day. You're like one of my favorite people. So be prepared. You know, I'm probably going to give you a lot of phone calls. I'm just saying. All right. Well, if you need someone to empty uh, two barrels of buckshot into the ass of Isaac and Ishmael, you know exactly where to find me. Oh, goodness. I may give you a phone call for that. All right. Well, that's it. I think that line forms to the left. (laughs) 
right, well, that's it for Jed Bartlett is my president, at least for now, because this show is going on hiatus for a bit while other projects at Chipperish pick up. There's How StoryWorks, a college-level class in narrative theory released in weekly podcast form, Still Pretty, a Buffy video blog on YouTube, and Big Strong Yes, a podcast about courage, creativity, and the call to adventure, hosted by myself and Dr. Kelly Jones. Thanks so much to everyone who has joined us for this journey into denial. And for the last time for a while, here's a word from your president and mine, Jed Bartlett. Today, for the first time in history, the largest group of Americans living in poverty are children. One in five children live in the most abject, dangerous, hopeless, backbreaking, gut-wrenching poverty any of us could imagine. One in five and their children. If fidelity to freedom and democracy is the code of our civic religion, then surely the code of our humanity is faithful service to that unwritten commandment that says we shall give our children better than we ourselves receive. Let me put it this way. I voted against the bill because I didn't want to make it harder for people to buy milk. I stopped some money from flowing into your pocket. If that angers you, if you resent me, I completely respect that. But if you expect anything different from the President of the United States, you should vote for someone else. Thanks very much, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the chicken. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act.